Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Lieve van Hoensel from the European Parliament. Dr. van Hoensel is a foresight advisor within the European Parliamentary Research Service, which provides MEPs with scientific evidence and analysis for whatever political issues they're working on. She's also worked for STOA, the Office of Science and Technology Options Assessment, which is also in the European Parliament, where she first introduced foresight methods. And she's written a book on foresight and a practical manual for policy analysts called Guidelines for Foresight-Based Policymaking. I will put links to both of those in the show notes for today's episode. So, Leva, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Toby. Great to be here. Foresight is one of those words that gets thrown around quite a lot when you talk about science advice for policy, and I suppose even about policymaking in general. So um, I'm glad to have the chance to talk to you and maybe pin down exactly what it means. So as a first stab, to me, the word foresight basically means looking into the future, or I guess at least trying to look into the future. Am I roughly on the right track there? Uh, Yes and no. So a lot of people think that foresight is kind of fortune telling. Uh, to predict the future. That's exactly what foresight is not. A foresight is not to predict the future, but is to minimize surprise in the future. Of course, when you can predict the future, you do not have surprises. Uh, but foresight is to minimize surprise. It is to investigate what might happen to be able to prepare ourselves for this. Okay. And then talking specifically about science advice, I mean, the way you explained it just then it sounds like the definition of what science advice is trying to do anyway. I mean, you know, based on the evidence we have, predict what the implications could be for the future and for for the surroundings. So isn't all science advice basically an attempt at foresight? Um, I think that ideally all scientific advice should be foresight-based. Foresight extends really the attention from here and now to the long future and to from here to the planet. Um, scientific advice, and then especially when I speak about um, technology assessment, uh, should look into the possible impacts on society of the developments we are seeing. Okay. And I guess uh, in that way, you boost the quality of your science advice. There are two aspects in foresight which are very important for scientific advice for policy. One is that it should make policy coming from the scientific advice future-proof, but also looking into wide areas of impact. And if you only would use scientific advice based upon here and now, what you know today, without really looking in what it can mean tomorrow, um, I don't think this is um, responsible scientific advice. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned a few moments ago uh, technology assessment. Might it be useful to ask you what exactly you mean by that? So um, technology assessment is the assessment of technologies with their impacts on society. And uh, that's one of the elements of foresight, because foresight is often related to the future, but foresight is also related, as I already said, to the broader society. Okay, great. So how does one go about actually doing this? Like what characterizes foresight-based science advice specifically? So the characteristics of foresight-based advice as we used in the parliament is that, first of all, you have to have a systemic, holistic view 
of the problem you look into. For instance, if you look into uh, self-driving vehicles, you have also to understand that maybe they need um, internet access for managing all the obstacles they might meet and so on. You also have to take into account who are the users, who are the developers, will policymakers be able to arrange everything and so on. In addition to the systemic view, which is basically uh, something which is good to do in a lot of jobs, that's always taking a step back and looking to what you are going to do, where it fits and so on. So that's the systemic view or a holistic view if you want. And then the second step is a 360-degree view. Therefore, we use already um, since uh, 2015 in the parliament, we use the STEEP scheme. And the STEEP scheme is an acronym for a lot of people now STEEP. But the S stands for societal lens to look through the problem. The T stands for technological or scientific issue. Uh, then you have an E for economic views an E for environment, a P for political, and then we added um, ethical and demographic to look through these seven lenses when we tackle um, a topic for a scientific advice. Okay, so this steeped thing is like a, like a checklist, like a methodology. So you can say, when I'm considering this issue, have I taken into account the societal consequences, the economic, the technological and so on. That's the idea. It's a checklist, and especially in order to avoid that we have blind spots, because uh, we have, for instance, seen a lot of things during COVID. You can take decisions on medical grounds and to protect the care uh, givers and so on. But there are also a lot of economic factors. So what do companies do when you close them down and so on? So it's important to look to the economical issues, to the societal, the psychological um, element of the telework, of the kids not being able to go to school and so on. So it's really very important to look to a big variety of lenses and not only to stick on the one which seems the most obvious. Okay. So, so, so you were listing these features of foresight-based advice. Uh, it's systemic, it has this 360-degree view. Um, is there more? The third one is to be aware of biases. And this is exactly uh, what I investigated before I wrote this book, um, is where do biases come from and how do they interfere in the scientific advisory process? And I do not speak, in the beginning I thought it's especially policymakers who are biased and we have to see how we can understand their biases so that we can communicate better about the advice. But very quickly, I discovered that the first biases are with the scientific advisors. Uh, for instance, already in taking a topic that we already have the solution in mind before we tackle the project. Uh, for instance, with a project on sustainable mobility, you might risk that you immediately think, yes, electric cars are the solution. And you work on electric cars, but the question was on mobility, not on cars. So you can make a lot of misassumptions already as a scientific advisor. And it's, of course, very difficult to be neutral as a scientist, as a policymaker, but also as a scientific advisor. Okay. Um, but then having become aware of biases, what can we do about them? Yeah. So what, what biases do is biases distort how we perceive effects 
and opinions and how we weigh evidence and make assessments. So it is very important to be aware of the biases. And my hypothesis is that being aware of the biases makes advisors much more open-minded by which the quality of the scientific advice increases. And of course, it's not a question of avoiding all biases. It's overcoming biases versus living with biases. In our private life, we can be biased, but when we work as a scientific advisor, as a policy advisor, we should be aware of our biases and trying to challenge them. So challenging biases already helps increasing the quality of our um, scientific advice. Hmm. Can we also try to reduce biases? Like, is there a general way to do that? Where do these things come from in the first place? So we have our beliefs and we get a lot of facts and evidence that we collect and synthesize in the beginning of a scientific advice process. And some of these facts and evidence fit in our beliefs. So we we like them. For instance, if I were an anti-vaxxer, which of course I'm not, I would tend to believe all the evidence which proved that vaccines or unsafe, or whatever. And all the facts and evidence about the positive things of vaccination, I would tend to ignore. So already the balance you give to certain facts and evidence makes that you can be influenced a lot. You you can fool yourself by your own biases. Yeah, yes, indeed. Do you have in mind um, like a little list of the biases which you think are most Uh, interesting or most prevalent in scientific advice? So I categorize biases in research biases, which are already biases in the evidence, but most of the biases occur in the perception of evidence, what we do with the evidence. For instance, there is also an attention bias. Um, An attention bias is what you focus on also creates that you have a tunnel vision and that you might have blind spots. Another thing is availability bias. So what is written about, you see. Also, I categorize authority bias. When an authority tells you something or someone you see as an authority, and this can be uh, someone like uh, Trump, but it can be uh, also a film star or whatever, um, who says that she will never vaccinate herself or her children uh, because she doesn't find it natural. And you might tend to follow this because she is for you an authority. Mm -hmm. I think we are quite associative beings. For instance, romantic bias. We know that wood stoves are not so good. Uh, They give a lot of particulate matter and so on. But we find it romantic. And we then tend to say, yes, but you have a wood stove, but the diesel car of the neighbors is much worse for environment. So this is one of the ways such bias work. Also, nature and bio biases, everything which is natural, we perceive as good and artificial things as bad. Uh, For instance, for some people, it's already a good way to say that GM food is not good or vaccines are not good. It's not natural. It's not biological. But in nature, you can find a lot of dangerous things. So yeah, I find this stuff really interesting, but um, but we should probably stay on topic. So uh, you've mentioned, I think, three features of foresight-based science advice. So I spoke about the three of the four characteristics of foresight-based advice. Um, systemic or holistic approach, 360-degree view with the seven lenses of steeped, 
bias awareness. And then the last one is also a very important one, is systematically assessing the impacts of what we suggest. For instance, uh, one of my uh, favorite papers I once wrote with a trainee is, what if we didn't need cows for our beef? It was an article on artificial meat. And if you then look into primary impacts, secondary impacts, tertiary impacts, and so on, you come to a very funny insight on what this means. Of course, the main impact is that you do not have the methane emissions from the cows. Uh, by which you contribute to the mitigation of climate change. Um, another impact could be that meat becomes attractive for vegans. So if you have artificial meat and you do not need cows anymore, for instance, you also do not have milk or you have less milk available. And a secondary impact can be that the price of milk, for instance, is skyrocketing. Uh, you may need alternatives for leather. But very important, you will have to change the whole agricultural canvas. Uh, so the farmer's role will be different. You have a lot of land available. So what do you do with this land? Uh, so there are a lot of impacts. You mentioned a bunch of different stakeholders, so like farmers and, and vegans and so on. Is this the same then as what in other contexts is called stakeholder analysis or stakeholder consultation? This is a concrete aspect in foresight, a stakeholders analysis on which you can see who is really concerned, who is affected by the policy issue, who is important for the policymakers to keep in mind because the decision could be very important for them or they could be concerned about this. Yeah, and then presumably you can include stakeholders in the process. Yes, so there are uh, two ways in foresight. There is the foresight thinking, which has these four principles that you take the holistic approach, the 360 degree view, that you are aware of biases in the system from yourself and from the others, and that you systematically assess impacts. But in the process, it's important to have a participatory phase where you involve stakeholders and where you probe for stakeholders' hopes and fears to understand what are the concerns of society and have an inclusive approach where you really include a variety of actors in society. All right. So let me check I properly understand this. Um, the audience of this podcast includes a lot of people who are already familiar in general with how science advice works, or in some contexts, or at least the basic principles of it. And so you present foresight as a specific kind of approach to science advice, which has these advantages you've mentioned, which means I'm interested in understanding what's distinctive about that approach that's not present in vanilla science advice or the conventional way of doing things. I like the example of the cows. Yeah, What happens if you change policy to favor artificial meat, lab-grown meat? So do I have this right? The conventional science advisor might say, you ask me about artificial meat. I hear you want to improve people's health or reduce methane emissions from cattle. Um, and I'm happy to tell you that the evidence supports that move. That would indeed improve health and the environment. Um, and by contrast, the foresight science advisor basically goes much further and says, well, on top of those two primary objectives, you should also think about the implications of changing the policy, uh, the other implications, like you said, for milk, for leather, for land, for farmers' livelihoods, for agriculture and the economy and so on. Is that the basic idea? By using foresight, you spot all the secondary impacts that you wouldn't otherwise have thought of. 
yeah, secondary and tertiary and so on. It's indeed like this. You used to work to promote uh, cultured meat. And this is already a bias because then you only look at the positive things while it's important for the policymakers also to see what are side effects. And these side effects are a key element in the foresight process that you really carefully investigate all the possible impacts. As I said in the beginning, foresight is about avoiding surprises. So it's not only to go to a goal that you want to reach, but to be prepared if something goes wrong or something is different or on impacts which you can foresee. Yeah, that makes sense. So one implication of this, I suppose, is that science advice will always have to be multidisciplinary. Because you can't identify all the effects in all the different domains unless you have that wide range of expertise. Even if you think, oh, this is a very narrow technical question, maybe we only need to ask an engineer or an epidemiologist or whatever. You don't actually know that it's safe to assume that until you've done the foresight work. And for that, you need the other disciplines too. Yeah, and that is a very, you say a very interesting thing. And if you do multidisciplinary preparation of scientific advice, you already are a lot going in the direction of foresight. For instance, um, if you immediately look into economical and ethical and societal aspects and so on, you already come to a lot of issues um, which might be important um, in decision-making. But what's important in foresight is, I already told, it's an inclusive and participatory approach when you want to check the societal context and this is interdisciplinary because then you have for instance a social scientist a philosopher discussing with an engineer you see and um, this is multidisciplinary but when they discuss together there are uh, very interesting argumentation theories and when people from a different discipline approach the same problem and they can ask each other for clarifications then you really get this interdisciplinary process, which also goes in the direction of foresight, because there you also include the concerns of people with a completely different view. Like I already spoke about the self-driving vehicles, uh, and this was a topic that came up when we did a big robotics project for the parliament back in 2015. And there we had engineers who developed the basically the traditional technology assessment about robotics in transport. And uh, we had a philosopher to guide us also in the foresight approach. And when the engineers presented why the cellar driving cars were really the solution for a lot of things, um, I saw several of these social scientists sitting, watching and saying, but I don't trust the cellar driving vehicle. And another one, uh, but I love driving my car. And then the, the engineer said, yes, but it's the best. You will have maybe one that's on every 100 that you have now. But these arguments do not help if these emotions about trust in a system instead of a person. And also the relationship between a car owner and his car. <laughs> because this is a, another type of impact. But it's important to get the views from all the points. That's really interesting. Does that also help people to identify some biases? Like I'm imagining that I have a particular set of blind spots because of my research background or the way I think. But if you come from a totally different discipline, a different angle, then you can notice things I wouldn't. Yeah, you can get biases from other disciplines. 
you can already exclude a number of biases by having a combination to a multidisciplinary approach in the scientific advice. Um, but what we what we do in foresight um, is more than avoiding biases. It's also to balance evidence with the societal context. Well, that question of balancing is something that interests me too, because it's okay to say you have to take the societal implications into account as well as the cold, hard evidence, for want of a better phrase. But, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to come to a recommendation, to a position. And that means you have to somehow balance those two inputs. Does the foresight approach give any advice on how to do that? So, foresight-based scientific advice... So evidence is valid from the past to today. Evidence is basically a synthesis of what we know from the past till today. What we can add to scientific advice with foresight is to look into the societal context and basically hopes and fears of people give us a view of the concerns for the future. And if you only take the evidence and not take into account at all societal context, then you have very technocratic decisions. Of course, this is very easy. On the other hand, if you would only take uh, into account societal concerns, uh, the societal context for taking policy decisions, this is not evidence-based at all. But it's the balance of the two. So the, the evidence which gives us information about everything we know today, and we know nothing about tomorrow. We can have ideas about developments, but the evidence is restricted to today. And the concerns for the future give us an idea about what might happen in the future. Yeah, well, okay, but not to be too glib about this, science can also make predictions about the future. I mean, that's one of the things it's supposed to be good at. Uh, like I take the, the philosophical point, I suppose, that evidence is only about how things have been up till now. But we also then have the working assumption that, you know, all else being equal, the future will behave a bit like the past did. And science is quite good at saying the evidence suggests that this will happen in the future. And if the evidence is quite robust, then those predictions could be quite confident. So my question was more like, if you have some scientific projections based on this evidence, and you also have societal hopes and fears about how things might turn out, and those things pull in different directions... Does foresight then help to balance those things? Or perhaps not. I mean, perhaps this is too general a question. Perhaps it has to be done on a case-by-case basis. I don't know. Um, to give um, another example of how it works. So you have evidence can prove something and societal context can put everything a bit in doubt. Um, for instance, one of our other trainees in the time, she made an article on artificial intelligence in agriculture, on the benefits and the challenges ahead. And um, she had several interviews with experts, with academics, with scientists and with other stakeholders. And she concluded that it was very clear, from the evidence, it was clear that artificial intelligence can help farmers reduce pesticides, um, monitor soil quality over space and time, make decisions when and how much to fertilize, make decisions what crops to plant, about crop rotation, supply chain. But the societal context, despite all the positive conclusions from scientific side, they were worried about, especially the farmers' community, 
about data ownership. Do these companies who give the services based on AI own their data, of their form, of their way of work, and so on? Can they fully trust them? Can they trust the AI systems? Because it's said that they can help them a lot in uh, making better decisions. But can you simply trust an AI system? What about inequalities? Because if you use AI systems, you also need some training. You need some technology. So the cost of technologies might create some inequalities, but also the accessibility for trainings, the lack of skills and so on. Uh, the coverage in rural areas of internet access, which might be needed for this AI system. And then above all, of course, also cybersecurity. So this is an example that evidence can be different in the view of scientists and in the perception of the people concerned, in this case, the, the farmers. So this gap between evidence and societal context is important when you take decisions. If you then would say, voila, the evidence uh, says that AI is all perfect and uh, should be used, and there would be a policy decision taken that, um, for instance, uh, CAP money, um, so the Common Agriculture Policy, uh, would support AI in farmers because it's so good, not taking into account the societal context, uh, then you could, for instance, have as a consequence that you have indeed inequalities between countries with small forms where uh, training of one person, for instance, perform could be an enormous cost that you cannot have all the skills in each of the small farms. Why in big farms in some other countries it might be um, very easy. Some countries have a better internet coverage and so on. So you might create inequalities in Europe by just following this scientific advice in this way. Okay. I have another question. Well, not so much a question as a, as a thought, which I hope you can comment on. I wonder if what foresight is doing here is not so much um, adding a new way of thinking to the policymaking process, but more moving some stuff that used to be the domain of the policymaker into the domain of the scientist. You know, policymakers have various inputs to their decisions, as we know, and, and science is one. And on the traditional view of science advice, the contribution of science is to supply scientific evidence only, right? But that's not to say that in that traditional mode, all the other stuff, the societal implications, the hopes and fears, the economic impacts, and so on, those are not absent. It's just that it's the policymaker's job to think about them and, and if needed, then to reconcile them with the science and with each other and whatever. And policymakers, we think, have other ways to access that information, like, for instance, they talk with citizens. So if we really think that stuff can be better done by the scientist, then okay, we can kind of broaden the scientist's remit to include societal impacts, and I guess then narrow the politician's remit. But that's not the same as introducing something new to the mix. What do you think? Um, it's not to the scientists to speak with the stakeholders. This is what the advisory services should organize. So you still have a strict separation of the scientific advice and what you do for the societal context. Ah, yeah, you're quite right. I, I was conflating the scientist and the science advisor. Okay. So the process is more sophisticated than I was imagining. There are several elements in the process of foresight-based uh, scientific advice. And um, the first is that um, you start working on a policy issue. And a policy issue can be 
um, a topic which is requested by your clients, in our case, in the European Parliament, the members of the committees. Or it can be something which is suggested by someone in the administration uh, because they see there is a need for it. And then you have to see what is basically the topic about and what are the stakeholders. And there uh, we can use the STEEP scheme. Uh, we can do a quick systems analysis to understand what is the system of which the topic makes part. And this can be quite easily done. So there are some tricks for it. It's not all that complicated. So um, you can just sit with a few colleagues together and ask a lot of open questions. Just brainstorm one hour or so and all the open questions are fine. So you ask what, questions starting with what, who, why, where. Uh, when and how. And these six words for asking questions really can help to have a vivid discussion and really be very uh, creative in finding all elements linked. And then you make a kind of scoping paper which um, identifies what you need as evidence. So this means you need to select and consult trustable sources. You need uh, to collect and synthesize evidence, to analyze it, to assess the evidence, at least in a multidisciplinary way, but ideally already a bit interdisciplinary. And um, this is where the evidence part stopped. So this is pure scientific evidence where you need the scientist. And then only in the next phase, stakeholders are involved, or at least we have to investigate views of stakeholders. Then in a policy briefing, you start from evidence-based policy options, but you frame them in the societal context. So you consolidate policy options which are purely evidence-based, but you balance the evidence with the societal acceptance and concerns when you explain them to policymakers, so in our case, members or committees, and they all explain them in the context of possible concerns, of possible side effects, and so on. Here, I also should say that we at the European Parliament, we give advice for the entire hemicycle. When you work as a scientific advisor for a government with a certain plan and a certain vision of where they want to go, of course, you have a different scope. Uh, they try to give advice to reach goals. We try to inform the debate. And that's a different scope. And of course, in a government case, you still can alert about some side effects. But for us, it's really, it's a mindset. Yeah. Okay, so when I was worrying about broadening the role of the scientist, I hadn't made this distinction between scientist and science advisor. So the role of the scientist is still the evidence. And then at the next stage, the role of the scientific advisor is to synthesize that evidence with societal impacts. Yeah, and even more, the role of the scientific advisor is... Uh very important for the credibility of scientific advice. Uh, I see scientific advisors as guardians of the process. They should be sure that they really understand the question well for scientific advice. They have to look into the ecosystem in a, a very detailed way. They have to find often this evidence part, evidence collection is outsourced, but they have to make the scoping paper for this, the specifications for outsourced research um, to identify really what they want to see as elements in the reports, not what the contents of the advice, of course, but what they expect scientists to come up with, also to foresee peer reviews and so on. 
And in addition, they have to do this stakeholders analysis and to organize um, a way of including stakeholders' views. And this can be, in simple cases, um, they can analyze what uh, views of certain groups are on a certain issue, for instance, if you work on pesticides and so on, which is not a simple thing. And then they have to put the evidence from the scientific part in relation with the societal context in their briefings, but clearly making a distinction between what's the evidence and what's societal context. So it's always evidence-informed, but they have to ensure that they put the evidence in the context of what lives in society and the fears especially, because policy should also be trusted. So to give trustworthy advice, you do not give only the evidence when it might lead to some side effects. Mm -hmm. And are there some uh, areas of science advice where foresight is particularly important and particularly valuable? So where it's important to take a foresight approach, this is when you have complex issues, areas characterized by uncertainties and areas which are controversial, which are polemic. There it is very, very helpful to have this participatory uh, stakeholders approach because this is something you do not solve with evidence. It clarifies a lot when you discuss with a lot of people. But the most important thing for foresight is that it's very important to do it for complicated issues, wicked problems also, um, everything which is a bit contradictory and has a lot of interconnections with other issues. Their foresight is very important. Hmm. So it's interesting that you mentioned about wicked problems, because this is something that's come up, of course, in a lot of conversations about how science can engage with the big challenges. And these wicked problems, which are very large and very complex and kind of intricately connected with other issues, but also with themselves. So there are feedback loops and unpredictable events and what have you. So it becomes very difficult, as I understand it, to make reliable predictions about the effects of whatever you do to the system. So climate change, I think, is one of these, right? We don't just have a completely deterministic model that tells us what comes out of the other end when we input a particular thing. And what I was wondering is whether foresight is any help there, because for sure what we really need is some kind of foresighty evaluation of the primary effects and the secondary effects and the tertiary effects and so on of any given intervention. But isn't the point of wicked problems that we can't really have those? We can't put our finger on them. I think that wicked problems are, you can get a better insight in them by foresight, but you cannot solve them by foresight. And indeed, climate change is the most known wicked problem um, because it has a lot of complex interdependencies. Um, for instance, a few years ago, they decided at the European Parliament to replace all the plastic bottles by glass bottles for the drinks in the cafeteria. This is an environmental issue. Yeah, because you don't want plastic pollution, you want to avoid plastics everywhere, in the ocean, in the air, in the water. And if you replace them by glass bottles, then you replace them by a system which uses a lot of energy, because to make glass bottles you need a lot of energy. You need to transport them because they have to go back to the factory. So you create a lot of other problems which then are not good for the climate, because they are all CO2-related 
if you look into transport, into the make, the heat you need, the cleaning also. So it's an interlinkage. And this happens, I think, in a lot of decisions you take for climate change or for environment, that you have a very complex interaction between climate impact and environmental impacts. And uh, foresight can help you to identify this, but in the end, the decisions have to be made on one or the other way. If you would get a request uh, which is focused on climate change, then it's easy, you keep the plastic bottles. If the planet is your priority, then you say we don't want plastics. And the problem is you have to find a solution Yeah, a decision has to be taken. So it's very complex. It's also like um, the definition of renewable. So now there is a big taxonomy. But if you just look to wood as renewable, I can burn in our stove. Yes, we have a very modern wood stove. We can burn in our stove in one weekend a tree, which will need maybe 30 years to grow. So it's renewable, but it's exhaustible. You cannot follow the, the use. So the, the definition of renewable also is such a wicked Thing because it's a bit tricky. Maybe it's biased. Maybe um, we wanted to, to feel safe, so we, we include wood as renewable, but we forget to say that it should only be wood which cannot be used for economic purposes um, other than burning wood because we can make furniture, maybe we can make buildings which uh, store a lot of CO2 by the wood, so there can be a lot of things on. But for um, wood as renewable, for instance, is um, something which is a bit contradictory. Like uh, in my book, I focus a lot on the um, example of the biofuel, the original biofuel law. So everything came from the Kyoto Protocol. So they said, yes, we need less um, CO2. And one of the ways to um, mitigate climate change by reducing CO2 was working with renewables. And then one of the renewables was biofuel. But biofuel is like you add it to the diesel and it, it basically indirectly promotes the use of diesel cars. So you can really put a lot of, it's always, if you forget where a certain measure comes from, then uh, you might go in a direction which is completely different as the original purpose. Yes, right. Exactly. Because I don't know if you know, do you know the cobra effect, Toby? The cobra effect? No, I don't think I do. It sounds terrifying. The cobra effect. So you are British. <laughs> you know yes, about I'm British, the... Yeah. the <laughs> about um, UK ruling India. Yes, perhaps not the most glorious part of our history. Yeah. The Cobra effect is basically an effect of an incentive which is designed to solve a problem, ending up in rewarding people for making the problem worse. And um, this originated from the time India fell under British rule. So the British government was concerned about the number of deadly cobras in Delhi. And the government therefore offered uh, a bounty, a reward for every dead cobra which was brought. And initially this was a very successful strategy because the story says that large number of snakes were killed for the reward. But however, what would you do as enterprising <laughs> citizen if you get a reward for every dead cobra? Um... I guess in time I might start a cobra breeding program so I could make some money off it. Voilà, this is exactly <laughs> this is exactly what happened. So enterprising Indians began to breed cobras for the income. <laughs> and then of course at a certain point the government became aware of this and the reward program was scrapped. But what next? 
so I guess you take away the incentive to breed the cobras out, but then you have a lot of cobra farms, essentially, with worthless cobras in them. Voilà, indeed. So the, the cobra breeders set their worthless snakes free and the wild cobra population uh, further increased. So this is a perverse effect. Yeah, you, you take a decision based upon an assumption, but by systematically assessing impacts, which is a key element of foresight thinking. If you would apply this on the proposal, let us give an award for every dead cobra, what would be the secondary effect? What would be the tertiary effect? And so on. These are things which I think if you systematically use this, it's like playing chess. You always look to next steps of everyone else. You could have avoided this. Also, this also is the same with the biofuels. You could have foreseen that this could happen, and then of course you can you can decide to take another policy. Right, the cobra effect. I'll remember that. So, listen, this has been great. Thank you so much for properly illuminating uh, this concept of foresight, which for me has been one of the remaining black boxes when I hear people talk about science advice until today. So, Dr. Liefer van Bunsel, I am very grateful indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much, Toby. I enjoyed it a lot. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academy networks, representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learning societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and as such we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but they're not the views of Sapea and certainly not of the European Commission. And finally, this lovely cello music is written by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And I'm sorry for talking over it.